Welcome to this Upila audio presentation of The Boy Fortune Hunters in Alaska by Floyd Akers. The story written in 1906 was the prototype boy adventure novel. It was originally entitled Sam Steele's Adventures on Land and Sea. The series is the basis for many other later boy adventure novels like The Hardy Boys, Tom Swift, and Rick Brandt. Sam Steele is the son of a sea captain. His father is reported killed in a shipwreck, and Sam is quickly cheated of his inheritance. Now an orphan, he meets his maternal uncle, Naboth Perkins, another sea captain and ship owner. Together, the two set sail in the Pacific trade. Sam Steele is a stereotyped ideal, a capable, brave, enterprising, likable, manly 16-year-old American. From San Francisco, Sam and his uncle embark on Naboth's ship, the Flipper, carrying provisions north for miners of the Alaska Gold Rush. The plot was influenced by Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island and H. Ryder Haggard's She. And now, the boy fortune hunters in Alaska. Chapter 1. I Hear Bad News. Sam, come here! It was Mrs. Rank's voice, and sounded more bitter and astringent than usual. I can easily recall the little room in which I sat, poring over my day's lessons. It was in one end of the attic of our modest cottage, and the only room done off upstairs. The sloping side walls that followed the lines of the roof were bare except for numerous pictures of yachts and other sailing craft, with which I had plastered them from time to time. There was a bed at one side and a small table at the other, and over the little window was a shelf wherein I kept my meager collection of books. Sam, are you coming or not? With a sigh, I slid down my book, opened the door, and descended the steep, uncarpeted stairs to the lower room. This was Mrs. Rank's living room, where she cooked our meals, laid the table, and sat in her high-backed wooden rocker to darn and mend. It was a big square room, which took up most of the space in the lower part of the house, leaving only a place for a small storeroom at one end and the captain's room at the other. At one side was the low, broad porch with a door and two windows opening onto it, and at the other side, which was properly the back of the cottage, a small wing had been built which was occupied by the housekeeper as her sleeping chamber. As I entered the living room in response to Mrs. Rank's summons, I was surprised to find a stranger there, seated stiffly upon the edge of one of the straight chairs and holding his hat in his lap, where he grasped it tightly with two big red fists, as if afraid that it would get away from him. He wore an old flannel shirt open in the neck and a weather-beaten pea-jacket, and aside from these trademarks of his profession, it was easy enough to determine from his air and manner that he was a seafaring man. There was nothing remarkable about that for everyone in our little seacoast village of Batterraft got a living from old ocean in one way or another. But what startled me was to find Mrs. Rank confronting the sailor with a white face and a look of mingled terror and anxiety in her small gray eyes. "'What is it, Auntie?' I asked, sudden fear striking in my heart as I looked from one to the other in my perplexity. The woman did not reply at first, but continued to stare wildly at the bowed head of the sailor, bowed because he was embarrassed and ill at ease. 
but when he chanced to raise a rather appealing pair of eyes to her face, she nodded and said briefly, Tell him. Yes, ma'am, answered the man, but he shifted uneasily in his seat and seemed disinclined to proceed further. This began to make me very nervous. Perhaps the man was a messenger, a bearer of news, and if so, his tale must have an evil complexion, to judge by his manner and Mrs. Rank's stern face. I felt like shrinking back, like running away from some calamity that was about to overtake me, but I didn't run. Boy though I was, and very inexperienced in the ways of life, with its troubles and tribulations, I knew I had to stay and hear it all. I braced myself for the ordeal. Please tell me, I said, and my voice was so husky and low that I could scarce hear it myself. Tell me, is it, is it about my father? The man nodded. It's about the captain, he said, looking stolidly into Mrs. Rank's cold features as if striving to find in them some assistance. I was one that sailed with him last May aboard the Saracen. Why are you here? I cried desperately, although even as I spoke there flashed across my mind a first realization of the horror the answer was bound to convey. Cause the Saracen found it off Lucaeus, said the sailor with blunt deliberation, and it went to the bottom, with all hands, all but me that is. I caught a spar and floated three days and four nights, making at last Andros Island, where a fisherman pulled me ashore more dead than alive. That's nigh three months gone, sir. I've had fever since. Brain fever, they called it. So I couldn't bring the news afore. I felt my body swaying slightly and wondered if it would fall. Then I caught at a ray of hope. But, but my father, Captain Steele, maybe, maybe he floated ashore as well, I gasped. The sailor shook his head regretfully. None but me was alive, sir. He answered in a solemn voice. The tide cast up many of the Saracen corpses while I lay in the fever, and the fisher folk give him a decent burial. But they saved the trinkets as was found on the dead men, and among them was Captain Steele's watch and ring. I kept them to bring to you. Here they be. He continued simply as he rose from his chair to place a small chamois bag reverently upon the table. Mrs. Rank pounced on it with trembling fingers and untied the string. Then she drew forth my father's well-known round silver watch and the carbuncle ring he had worn upon his little finger ever since I could remember. For a time nobody spoke. I stared stupidly at the sailor, noticing that the buttons on his pea jacket did not match, and wondering if he always sewed them back on himself. Mrs. Rank had fallen back into her tall rocking chair where she gyrated nervously back and forth, the left rocker creaking as if it needed greasing. Why was it that I could not burst into a flood of tears or wail or shriek or do anything to prove that I realized myself suddenly bereft of the only friend I had in all the world? There was an iron band around my forehead and another around my chest. My brain was throbbing under one and my heart trying desperately to beat under the other. Yet outwardly I must have appeared calm enough, and the fact filled me with shame, shame and disgust. An orphan now and alone in the world, 
This father whom the angry seas had engulfed was the only relative I had known since my sweet little mother wearied of the world and sought refuge in heaven years and years ago. And while father sailed away on his stout ship, the Saracen, I was left to the care of the hard-working but crabbed and cross old woman whom I had come to call through courtesy and convenience, Auntie, although she was in fact no relation whatever to me. Now I was alone in the world, father bluff and rugged, so strong and resourceful that I had seldom entertained a fear for his safety, was lying dead in the faraway island of Andros, and his boy must hereafter learn to live without him. The sailor, obviously uneasy at the effect of his ill tidings, rose now to go. But at his motion, Mrs. Rank seemed suddenly to recover the use of her tongue and sternly bade him to resume his seat. Then she plied him with questions concerning the storm and the catastrophe that followed, and the man answered to the best of his ability. Captain Steele was universally acknowledged as one of the best and most successful seamen Matter Raft had ever known. Through many years of trading in foreign parts, he had not only become sole owner of the Saracen, but had amassed a fortune which, it was freely stated in the town, was enough to satisfy the desires of any man. But this was merely guesswork on the part of his neighbors, for when ashore the old sailor confided his affairs to no one, unless it might have been to Mrs. Rank, for the housekeeper was a different person when the captain was ashore, recounting her own virtues so persistently and seemingly so solicitous for my comfort that my poor father stood somewhat in awe of her exceptional nobility of character. As soon as he had sailed, she dropped the mask and was often unkind. I never minded this enough to worry him with complaints, so he had been forever unconscious of her true nature. Indeed, my dear father had been so seldom at home that I dreaded to cause him one moment's uneasiness. He was a reserved man, too, as is the case with so many sailors, and since the death of his dearly loved wife had passed but little of his time ashore, I'm sure he loved me, for he always treated me with rare tenderness, but he never would listen to my entreaties to sail with him. The sea's no place for a lad that has a comfortable home, he used to reply in his slow, thoughtful way. Keep to your studies, Sam, my boy, and you'll be a bigger man some day than any seaman of us all. The captain's brief visits home were the only bright spots of my existence, and because I had no one else to love, I lavished upon one parent all the affection of which I was capable. Therefore my present sudden bereavement was so colossal and far-reaching in its effects upon my young life that it is no wonder the news staggered me and curiously dulled my senses. Almost as if in a dream I heard Mrs. Rank's fierce questions and the sailor's reluctant answers. And when he had told everything he knew about the matter, he got to his feet and took my hands gently in both of his big calloused ones. I'm right sorry, lad, as you've had this blow, he muttered feelingly. Captain was a good man and a kind master, and many's a time I've heard him tell of his boy Sam. I suppose he left ye provided with plenty of this world's goods, for he was a thrifty man and mostly in luck. But if ye ever run aground, lad, or find ye need a friend to cast a bowline, don't you forget that Ned Britton Stand by ye through thick and thin. With this he wrung my hands until I winced under the pressure. Then he nodded briefly to Mrs. Rank and hurried from the room. 
The twilight had faded during the interview, and the housekeeper had lit a tallow candle. As Ned Britton's footsteps died away, the woman bent forward to snuff the wick, and I noted a grim, determined look upon her features that was new to them. But her hands trembled somewhat, in spite of her assumed calmness, and the fact gave me a certain satisfaction. Her loss could not be compared to mine, but the captain's death was sure to bring about a change in her fortunes as well as my own. She resumed her regular rocking back and forth, riveting her eyes the while upon my face. I did not sit, but leaned against the table, trying hard to think, and thus for a long time we regarded each other in silence. Finally she cried out sharply, Well, what are you going to do now? In what way? I asked drearily. In every way. How are you going to live, for one thing? Why, the same way I'm doing now, I suppose, I said, trying to rouse myself to attend to what she was saying. Father owned this house, which is mine, and I'm sure there's considerable property besides, although the ship is lost. Fiddlesticks! exclaimed Mrs. Rank scornfully. I wondered what she meant by that and looked my question. Your father didn't own a stick of this house, she cried in a tone that was almost a scream. It's mine, and the deed's in my name. Well, I know, but Father has often explained that you merely held the deed in trust for me until I became of age. He turned it over to you as protection to me in case some accident should happen to him. He told me lots of times that this plan ensured my having a home, no matter what happened. I guess you didn't understand him, she answered, an evil flash in her eye. The fact is, this house was put into my name because the captain owed me money. What for, I asked. I've kept you in food and clothes ever since you were a baby. Don't you suppose that cost money? I stared at her bewildered. Didn't father furnish you that money? Not a cent. He just let it run on as he did with the wages. And it counts up big that away. Then the house isn't mine? Not an inch of it. Not a stick nor a stone. I tried to think what this would mean to me and what reason the woman could have for claiming a right to my inheritance. Once, I said musingly, Father told me how he had brought you here to save you from the poorhouse or starvation. He was sorry for you and gave you a home. That was while Mother was living. Afterwards, he said he trusted to your gratitude to take care of me and to be my friend in place of my dead mother. Fiddlesticks! She snapped again. It was a word she usually used to express contempt, and it sounded very disagreeable coming from her lips. The captain must have been dreaming when he told you that stuff and nonsense. I've treated you like my own son, no mistake about it, but I did it for wages, according to agreement between me and the captain, and the wages wasn't never paid. When they got to be a big lump, he put the house in my name to secure me, and it's mine. Every stick of it. My head was aching and I had to press my hand to it to ease the pain. In the light of one flickering candle, Mrs. Rank's hard face assumed the expression of a triumphant demon, and I drew back from it, shocked and repelled. If what you say is true, I said listlessly, I'd rather you take the old home to wipe out the debt. Yet Father surely told me it was mine, and it isn't like him to deceive me or or to owe money to anybody. However, take it, Auntie, if you like. 
I've got it, she answered, and I mean to keep it. I shook it along very well, I said, thinking, indeed, that nothing mattered much now that father was gone anyway. How will you live? she inquired. Why, there's plenty besides the house, in father's room. I nodded my head toward the door that was always kept locked in the captain's absence. There must be a great many valuable things stored. The very last time he was home, he said that in case anything ever happened to me, I would find a little fortune in his old sea chest alone. That may be, rejoined the old woman uneasily. I hope that story of his at least is true for your sake, Sam. I don't have anything against you, but right is right, and the house don't cover all that's coming to me either. The captain owed me four hundred dollars, besides the house, for your keep during all those years. And that'll have to be paid before you can honestly lay claim to a cent of his property. Well, of course, I agreed meekly enough, for all this talk of money was wearying me. But there should be much more than that in the chest alone, according to what father said. Let's hope there is, she said. You go to bed now, for you're clean done up. And no wonder. In the morning we'll both look into the captain's room and see what's there. I ain't a gonna take no mean advantage of you, Sam. You can depend on it. So go to bed. Sleep's the best cure for all troubles like yours. This last was said in a more kindly tone, and I was glad to take her at her word, and I crept away to my little room in the attic. Chapter 2 I find a relative. It may have been hours that I sat at my little table, overcome by the bitterness of my loss, and for more hours I tossed restlessly upon my hard bed, striving in vain for comfort. But suddenly, as I recalled a little affectionate gesture of my father's, I burst into a flood of tears, and oh, what relief it was to be able to cry, to sob away the load that had well nigh overburdened my young heart. After that last paroxysm of grief, I fell asleep, worn out by my own emotions, and it was long past my usual hour for rising that I finally awoke. In a moment as I lay staring at the bright morning sunshine, the sorrow that had been forgotten in sleep swept over me like a flood, and I wept again at the thought of my utter loneliness and the dreadful fate that had overtaken my dear father. But presently, with the elasticity of youth, I was able to control myself and turn my thoughts toward the future. Then I remembered that Mrs. Rank and I were to enter the captain's locked room and take an inventory of his possessions, and I began hurriedly to dress myself, that this sad duty might be accomplished as soon as possible. The recollection of the woman's preposterous claims moved me to sullen anger, it seemed like a reflection on father's honesty to claim that he had been in her debt all these years, and I resolved that she should be paid every penny she demanded, that the captain's honor might remain untarnished in death, even as it had ever been during his lifetime. As soon as I was ready, I descended the stairs to the living room, where Mrs. Rank sat rocking in her chair, just as I had left her the night before. She was always an early riser, and I noticed that she had eaten her own breakfast, and left a piece of bacon and cornbread for me upon the hearth. She made no reply to my good-morning aunt, so I took the plate from the hearth and ate my breakfast in silence. I was not at all hungry, but I was young and felt the need for food. 
not until I had finished did Mrs. Rank speak. We may as well look into the captain's room and get this done with, she said. It's only natural I should want to know if I'm going to get the money back that I spent on your keeping. Very well, I said. She went to a drawer of a tall bureau and drew out a small ivory box. Within this, I knew were the keys belonging to my father. Never before had Mrs. Rank dared to meddle with them, for the captain had always forbidden her and everyone else to enter his room during his absence. Even now, when he was dead, it seemed like disobedience to his wishes for the woman to seize the keys and march over to the door of the sacred room. In a moment, she had turned the lock and thrown open the door. Shy and half-startled at our presumption, I approached and peered over her shoulder. Occasionally, indeed, I had had a glimpse of the interior of this little place, half chamber and half office, and once or twice when I was a little child I had entered it to seek my father. Now as I glanced within, it seemed to be in perfect order, but it struck me as more bare and unfurnished than I had ever seen it before. Father must have secretly removed many of the boxes that used to line the walls, for they were all gone except for his big sea chest. The sight of the chest, however, reassured me, for it was in this that he had told me to look for my fortune in case anything should happen to him. The old woman at once walked over to the chest and, taking a smaller key from the ivory box, fitted in the lock and threw back the lid with a bang. There's your fortune, she said with a sneer. See if you can find it. I bent over the chest, gazing eagerly into its depths. There was an old Bible in one end and a broken compass in the other. That was it. Standing at one side, the woman looked into my astonished face and laughed mockingly. This was another of the captain's lies. He lied to you about owning the house. He lied to you about taking me out in charity. He lied to you about the fortune in the chest. An easy liar was Captain Steele, I have to say. I shrank back, looking into her exultant eyes with horror in my own. How dare you say such things about my father, I cried in anger. How dare I, she retorted. Why, because it's true, as you can see for yourself. Your father deceived you. He deceived me. I've paid out over $400 for your keep, thinking there was enough in this room to pay me back, and now I stand to lose every penny of it just because I trusted a lying sea captain. You won't lose a dollar, I cried indignantly, while I struggled to keep back the tears of disappointment and shame that rushed to my eyes. I'll pay you every cent of the money if I live. She looked at me curiously, with a half-smile on her thin lips. How? she asked. I'll work. I'll earn it. Huh. What can a boy like you earn? And what's going to happen when you're earning it? One thing's certain, Sam Steele. You can't stay here and lift off a poor, lone woman that's lost $400 by you already. You have to find another place. Fine. I'll do that, I said promptly. You have three days to get out, she continued, pushing me out of the room and relocking the door, although there was little reason for that. And you can take whatever clothes you've got along with you. Nobody can say that Jane Rank ain't acted like a Christian to you, even if she's beaten, defrauded out of her just rights. But if you should happen to earn any money, Sam, I hope you'll remember what you owe me. I will, I said coldly, and I meant it. To my surprise, Mrs. Rank gave a strange chuckle, which was doubtless meant as a laugh, the first time I'd ever known her to indulge in it.
It fired my indignation to such a point that I cried out, Shame! Seizing my cap, I rushed from the house. The cottage was built on a small hill facing the bay and was fully a quarter of a mile distant from the edge of the village of Batteraft. From our gate, the path led down the hill through a group of little trees and then split in two, one branch running down to the beach where the shipping lay and the other crossing the meadows to the village. Among the trees, my father had built a board bench overlooking the bay, and here I have known him to sit for hours enjoying the beauty of the view while the leafy trees overhead shaded him from the hot sun. It was toward this bench, a favorite resort of mine, because my father loved it, that I directed my steps on leaving Mrs. Rank. At the moment I was dazed by the amazing discovery of my impoverished condition, and this, following so suddenly upon the loss of my father, nearly overwhelmed me with despair. But I knew that prompt action on my part was necessary, for the woman had only given me three days' grace and my pride would not suffer me to remain that long in a home where my presence was declared a burden. So I would sit beneath the trees and try to decide where to go and what to do. But as I approached the place, I found, to my astonishment, that a man was already seated upon the bench. He was doubtless a stranger from Batteraft, for I had never seen him before. So I moderated my pace and approached him slowly, thinking he might discover he was on private grounds and take his leave. He paid no attention to me, being engaged in whittling a stick with a big jackknife. In appearance, he was short, thick-set, and of middle age. His round face was lined in every direction by deep wrinkles, and the scant hair that showed upon his temples was thin and gray. He wore a blue flannel shirt with a black kerchief knotted at the throat, but aside from this, his dress was that of an ordinary civilian, so I was at first unable to decide whether he was a sailor or a landsman. The chief attraction in the stranger was the expression on his face, which was remarkably humorous. Although I was close to him now, he paid no attention to my presence, but as he whittled away industriously, he gave vent to several half-audible chuckles that seemed to indicate that his thoughts were very amusing. I was about to pass him and go down to the beach where I might find a solitary spot for my musings, when the man turned his eyes up to mine and gave a wink that seemed both mysterious and confidential. "'It's Sam, ain't it?' he asked with another silent chuckle. "'Yes, sir,' I replied, resenting his familiarity while I wondered how he should know me. "'Captain Seal's son, I'm guessing,' he continued. "'The same, sir,' and I made a movement to pass on. "'Sit down, Sam, there's no hurry,' and he pointed to the bench beside him. I obeyed, wondering what he could want with me. Half turning toward me, he gave him another one of those curious winks, and then suddenly turned grave and resumed his whittling. "'May I ask who you are, sir?' I inquired. "'No harm in that,' he replied with a smile that lit his wrinkled face most comically. "'No harm in the world. I'm Naboth Perkins.' "'Oh,' I said without much interest. "'Never heard that name before, I take it.' No, sir. You remember your mother? Not very well, sir, I answered, wondering more and more. I was little more than a baby when she died, you know. I know. He nodded and gave a sort of grunt. Jerry hear what her name was before she got married to the captain. Oh, yes, I cried, suddenly enlightened. It was Mary Perkins. Then my heart fluttered wildly. 
I turned an intent and appealing gaze upon the little man beside me. Naboth Perkins was seized with another of those queer fits of silent merriment, and his shoulders bobbed up and down until the cough caught him, and for a time I feared he would choke to death before he could control the convulsions. But at last he recovered and wiped the tears from his eyes with a brilliant red handkerchief. I'm your uncle, lad, he said as soon as he could speak. This was news indeed, but news that puzzled me exceedingly. Why haven't I ever heard of you before? I asked soberly. Haven't you? He returned with evident surprise. Never. He looked the stick over carefully and cut another notch in it. Well, for one thing, I've never been in these parts afore, since the day I was born. For another, it stands to reason you was too young to remember, even if Mary had talked to you about her only brother before she died and quit this here sub-lunatic spear. And for a third and last reason, Captain Steele were a man that had little to say about most things, so it's fair to suppose he had less to say about his relations, eh? Perhaps it is as you say, sir. Quite likely. Yet it's mighty funny the Captain never let drop a word about me, good or bad. Were you my father's friend, I asked anxiously? That's as may be, said Mr. Perkins evasively. Friends is all kinds, from acquaintances to lovers. But the captain and me wasn't enemies by long shot, and I've been his partner these ten years back. His partner? I echoed astonished. The little man nodded. His partner, he repeated with much complacency. But our dealings together was all on a strict business basis. We didn't hobnob nor gossip, nor slap each other on the back. So as far as saying... We were exactly friends. Why, I can't honestly do it, Sam. I understand, I said, accepting his explanation with good faith. I came here at this time, continued Mr. Perkins, addressing his speech to the jackknife, which he held upon the palm of his hand, to see Captain Steele on an important business matter. We had agreed to meet, but I saw Ned Britton at the tavern last night, and heard for the first time that the Saracen had gone to Davy Jones, and took the cotton with her. So I come up here to have a little talk with you, which is his son, my own nephew. Why didn't you come up to the house? I inquired. Mr. Perkins turned upon me his peculiar wink, and his shoulders began to shake again, till I feared more convulsions. But he suddenly stopped short, and with abrupt gravity, nodded his head at me several times. That woman, he said in a low voice, I just can't abide that woman. I sympathized with him and said so, whereat my uncle gave me a gentle and kindly look and said in a friendly tone, Sam, my boy, I want to tell you all about myself. I'm your blood uncle and make no mistake. But first I want you to tell me all about yourself. You're an orphan now and my dead sister's child, and I take it I'm the only real friend you got in the world. So now, fire away. There was something about the personality of Naboth Perkins that invited confidence, or perhaps it was my loneliness and need of a friend that led me to accept this astonishing uncle in good faith. Anyway, I didn't hesitate to tell him my whole story, including my recent grief at the news of my father's death and the startling discovery that I had just made that I was penniless and in debt for my living to Mrs. Rank. Father has often told me, I concluded, that the house was mine, and it had been put in Mrs. Rank's name because he felt she was honest, and would guard my interests in his absence. 
and he told me there was a store of valuable articles in his room, which he'd been accumulating for years, and that the old sea chest alone contained enough to make me independent. But when we examined the room this morning, everything was gone, and the chest was empty. I don't know what to think of it. My father never lied, in spite of what Mrs. Rank says, I'm sure. Uncle Naboth whistled a sailor's hornpipe in a slow, jerky, and altogether dismal fashion. When it was quite finished, even to the last quavering bar, he said, Sam, who kept the keys to the room and the chest? Mrs. Rank. Aha! Uh -huh. Was the room dark and all covered with dust when you went in there this morning? I, I don't think so, I answered, trying to recollect. No! The blind was wide open and the room looked clean and in good order. Sailors is never known to keep their rooms in good order, boy. The captain's been gone five months and more. If all was straight, the dust would be thick on everything. To be sure, I said gravely. Then, Sam, it stands to reason the old woman went into the room while you were asleep and took everything out she could lay her hands on. Captain Steele didn't lie to you, my boy, but he made the mistake of thinking the woman was honest. She took advantage of the fact that the captain was dead and couldn't prove nothing, and so she robbed you. The suspicion had crossed my mind before, and I was not greatly surprised to hear my uncle voice it. Then can't we make her give it up? I asked. If she's done such a wicked thing, it seems as though we ought to accuse her of it and make her give me all that belongs to me. Uncle Naboth rose slowly from the bench, settled his felt hat firmly upon his head, pulled down his checkered vest, and assumed a most determined bearing. You wait here, my boy, and I'll beard the she-tiger in her den, and see what can be done. Then he gave a great sigh, and turning square around, marched stiffly up the path that led to the house. Chapter 3 My Fortunes Improve I awaited with as much patience as I could muster the result of the venture, I was proud of Uncle Naboth's bravery and hoped he would be successful. Surely the brief interview with my newly acquired relative had caused a great change in my future prospects, for it was not likely that my mother's brother would desert me in my extremity. I left the house that was now no longer my home without a single friend to whom I could turn. And behold, here was a champion awaiting to espouse my cause. Mr. Perkins was somewhat peculiar in his actions, it's true, but he was my uncle and my dead father's partner, and already I was beginning to have faith in him. It was a full half an hour before I saw him coming back along the path, but now he no longer strutted with proud determination. Instead, his whole stout little body drooped despondently. His hat was thrust back from his forehead, and upon his deeply wrinkled face stood big drops of perspiration. Sam, he said standing before me with a rather sheepish air, I were wrong, and I beg your pardon. That woman ain't no she-tiger. I misstated the case. She's a she-devil. The words were laden with disgust and indignation. Uncle Naboth drew out his gorgeous handkerchief and wiped his face with it. Then he dropped upon the bench and pushed his big hands deep into his capacious pockets with the air of a man crushed and defeated. I sighed. Well, then she refused to give up the property? Give up? She'd die first. Why, Sam, the critter tried to brain me with a gridiron. Almost, my boy, you were an orphan again. 
He who fights and runs away may not get much credit for it, but he's a dern sight safer than a dead man. The Perkinses was always a reckless crew, but sooner than face that female again, I'd tackle a mad bull. Won't the law help us? The law? Why, Sam, the law's more to be dreaded than a woman, cried Mr. Perkins in a voice of intense horror. It's an invention of the devil to keep poor mortals from becoming too happy in this ear of tears. My boy, if he ever has a chance to choose between the law and a woman, my advice is to commit suicide at once. It's quicker and less painful. But the law stands for justice, I protested. That's the bluff it puts up, but it ain't so. And where's your proof again, Mrs. Rank, anyway? Cotton Steel foolishly put the house in her name. If she ain't honest enough to give it up, no one can take it from her. And he kept secret about the fortune that was left in his room, so he can't describe the things you've been robbed of, although it's just a hopeless case. The she-devil has made up her mind to inherit your fortune, and you can't help yourself. As I stared into the little man's face, the tears came into my eyes and blurred my sight. He thrust the red handkerchief into my hand, and I quickly wiped away the traces of unmanly weakness. And when I could see plainly again, my uncle was deeply involved in one of his fits of silent merriment, and his shoulders were shaking spasmodically. I waited for him to cough and choke, which he proceeded to do before regaining his gravity. The attack seemed to have done him some good, for he smiled at my disturbed expression and laid a kindly hand on my shoulder. Run up to the house, my lad, and get your bundle of clothes. I'll be here when you get back. Don't worry over what's gone. I'll take care of you hereafter. I gave him a grateful glance and clasped his big horny hands in both of my own. Thank you, uncle, I said. I don't know what would have become of me if you had not turned up just when you did. Lucky wasn't it, Sam. But run along and get your traps. I obeyed, walking slowly and thoughtfully back to the house. When I tried to raise the latch, I found the door locked. Mrs. Rank, I called. Mrs. Rank, let me in, please. I've come for my clothes. There was no answer. I rattled the latch, but all was in vain. So I sat down on the steps of the porch, wondering what I should do. It was a strange and unpleasant sensation to find myself suddenly barred from the house in which I'd been born and wherein I had lived all my boyhood days. It was only my indignation against this selfish and hard old woman that prevented me from bursting into another flood of tears for my nerves were all unstrung by the events of the past few hours. However, anger held all other passion in check for the moment, and I was about to force an entrance through the side window, as I had done on several occasions before, when the sash of the window in my own attic room was pushed up, and a bundle was projected from it with such good aim that it would have struck my head had I not instinctively dodged it. Mrs. Rank's head followed the bundle, far enough to cast a cruel and triumphant glance upon my upturned face. There's your duds. Take them and go, you ungrateful wretch. And don't you let me see your face again until you come to pay me what you owes me for your keeping. Please, Mrs. Rank, can I have my father's watch and ring? I asked meekly. No, 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 she screamed in fury. Do you want to rob me of everything? Ain't you satisfied you owe me $400 already? I'd like some keepsake of my father's. I persisted, well knowing that it would be my last chance to procure it. You may keep the watch if you'll just give me the ring. 
I'll keep them both, and you'll get nothing more out of me now or never. Then she slammed down the window and refused to answer by a word my further pleadings. So finally I picked up the bundle and, feeling miserable and sick at heart, followed the path back to the little grove. Didn't take you very long, but that's all the better, said my uncle, shutting his clasp knife with a click and then standing up to brush the chips from his lap. We two will go to the tavern and talk over our future plans. Suddenly I walked by the side of Naboth Perkins until we came to the village. I knew everybody in the little town, and several of the fishermen and sailors met me with words of honest sympathy for my loss. Captain Steele had been the big man of Banneraft, beloved of all who knew him despite his reserved nature, and these simple villagers, rude and uneducated but kindly-hearted, felt that in his death they had lost a good friend and a neighbor of whom they had always been proud. Not one of them would have refused assistance to Captain Steele's only son. But they were all very poor, and it was lucky for me that Uncle Naboth had arrived so opportunely to befriend me. Having ordered a substantial dinner of the landlord of the rudder, Mr. Perkins gravely invited me to his private room for a conference, and I climbed the rickety stairs in his wake. The chamber was very luxurious in my eyes, with its rag carpet and high-posted bed, its washstand and rocking chair. I could not easily withhold my deference to the man who was able to hire it, and removing my cap I sat on the edge of the bed while Uncle Naboth took possession of the rocking chair and lit a big briar pipe. Having settled himself comfortably by putting his feet upon the sill of the open window, he remarked, Now, Sam, the lad, we'll talk it all over. Very well, sir, I replied, much impressed. In the first place, I am your father's partner, as I said afore. Some years ago, the cotton found he had more money than he could use in his own business, and I saved up a bit myself to match it. So we put both together and bought a schooner called the Flipper, which I'm free to say is the best boat for its size of its kind that ever sailed the Pacific. The Pacific? Naturally. Cotton steel on the Atlantic and Captain Perkins on the Pacific, and that way we divided up the world between us. He stopped to wink here and began his silent chuckle, but fortunately he remembered the importance of the occasion and refrained from carrying it to the choking stage. I suppose your father never said naught to you about this deal of ours, any more than he did to that she-bandit up at the house, and it's lucky he didn't, or the critter would be claiming the flipper too, and then you and I'd be out of a job. He winked again, solemnly this time, and I sat still and stared at him. Whatsoever, the flipper is still in statute co, and thank heaven for that. I made several voyages to her in Australia. That turned out fairly profitably, and brought the cotton and me some good bits of money. So last year we thought we'd tackle the Japan trade. That seemed to be looking up. It looked down again as soon as I struck the pesky shores, and a month ago I returned to Frisco a sadder and wiser man. Not that the losses were so great, Sam, you understand, but the earnings wasn't enough to buy you a shoestring. So I sailed cross lots to Batteraft to consult with my partner, which is Captain Steele, as to our next voyage and the rest of the story you know as well as I do. Your father being out of the firm, from no fault of his, his son is the natural successor, so I take it hereafter we'll have to consult together. 
My amazed expression amused him exceedingly, but I found it impossible just then to utter a single word. Uncle Naboth did not seem to expect me to speak, for after lighting his pipe again, he continued with an air of great complacency. It ought to be said that as you're a minor, I stands as your rightful guardian, and I have a right to act for you till you come of age. On the other hand, you ought to claim that being a partner, your size and age don't count, and you've a right to be heard. Howsoever, we won't go to law about it, Sam. The law is unreliable. Sometimes it's right and mostly it's wrong, but it ain't never to be trusted by an honest man. If you insist on dictating what this partnership's going to do, you'll probably run it on a rock in two jerks of a lamb's tail, for you have not got the experience old Cotton Steel had. But if you're satisfied to let me take the tiller and steer you into harbor, why, I'll accept the job and do the best I can on it. Uncle Naboth, I replied earnestly, had you not been an honest man, I would never have known you were my father's partner, or that he had any interest in your business. But you've been more than honest. You've been kind to me, and I'm only too glad to trust you in every way. Well spoke, lad, cried Mr. Perkins. He slapped his knee delightedly. It's what I had a right to expect in poor Mary's boy. We're sure to get along, Sam, and even if I don't make you rich, you'll never need a stout friend while your Uncle Nabe is alive and kicking. Then we both stood up and shook hands with great solemnity to seal the bargain, after which my friend and protector returned to his rocker and once more stretched his feet across the window sill. How much property belongs to me, Uncle? I asked. Well, we never drew up any papers. Cottonsteel knew as he could trust me and sold papers wasn't necessary. He owned one-third interest in the flipper and supplied one-half the money to carry on the trade. That made it mighty hard to figure out the profits, so we generally lumped it to save brain work. Of course, your father's been paid all his earnings after each voyage was over, so accounts is settled up to the Japan trip. Probably the money I gave him was in the sea chest, and that old she-pirate up in the house grabbed it with the other things. The Japan voyage was a failure, as I told you, but there's about a thousand dollars still coming to the cotton, which means it's coming to you, Sam and the ship's worth a good ten thousand besides. I tried to think what that meant to me. It's not a very big sum of money, is it, Captain? I asked diffidently. That depends on how you look at it. Big oaks from little acorns grow, you know. If you leave the matter to me, I'll try to make that thousand sprout considerable before you come of age. Of course I'll leave it to you, I said, and I'm very grateful for your kindness, sir. Don't you turn your gratitude loose too soon, Sam. I may land your fortunes high and dry on the rocks afore I got through with them. But if I do, it won't be on purpose, and we'll sink or swim together. And now that being as good as settled, the next thing to argue is what you're going to do while I'm sailing the seas and making money for you. What would you suggest, I asked. Well, some folks might think you ought to have more schooling. How old are you? Sixteen, sir. Can you write and do figures? Oh, yes. I finished the public school course, I replied, smiling at the simple question. Then I guess you've had study enough, my lad, and are ready to go to work. I never had much schooling myself, but I've managed to hold me own in the world, in spite of the way letters and figures mix up when I look at them. Not but what education is any good, but all education don't lay in schools. Rubbing against the world is what polishes up a man, and the feller that keeps his eyes open can learn something new every day. 
To be open with you, Sam, I need you pretty bad on the flipper. To keep the books and look after the accounts and do writing and spelling when letters has to be writ. On the last trip, I put in four days' hard work writing a letter that was only three lines long, and I'm blamed if the landsman I sent it to didn't telegraph me for a translation. So if you're willing to ship with the firm of Perkins and Steel, I'll make you purser and chief clerk. I should like that, I answered eagerly. Then the second pint settled. There's only one more. The flippers lie in the harbor in Frisco. When shall we join our lad? I'm ready now, sir. Good. I've ordered a wagon to carry us over to the railroad station at four o'clock. So you see, I had a pretty good idea beforehand what sort of stuff Mary's boy was made of. Now, let's go to dinner. <laughs> <laughs>